Hey, it's John. Happy Anthony Bourdain Day, everybody. You know, back when we first started the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, we were just figuring out what we were doing. And Tony died right at the beginning. And we did a little tribute to him. And it was kind of the first thing like this that I'd ever had to produce. And uh, it was about my hero being dead. <laughs> the reason I do this. We just thought it might be good to revisit. So here it is. I wasn't in Haifa. I wasn't in the north of Israel. I don't know what that was like. I was in Beirut. In the few years since I've started a travelless world, I found myself changing. The cramped, cynical worldview of a man who'd only seen life through the narrow prism of the restaurant kitchen had altered. I'd been so many places, I'd met so many people from wildly divergent backgrounds, countries, and cultures. Everywhere I'd been, I'd, I'd been, as in Beirut, treated so well. I'd been the recipient of so many random acts of kindness from strangers. And I'd begun to think that no matter where I went or who I sat down with, that food and a few drinks seemed always to bring people together. That this planet was filled with basically good and decent people doing the best they could, if frequently under difficult circumstances. That the human animal was perhaps a better and nicer species than I'd once thought. I'd begun to believe that the dinner table was the great leveler where people from opposite sides of the world could always sit down and talk and eat and drink, and if not solve all the world's problems, at least find for a time common ground. Now, I'm not so sure. Maybe the world's not like that at all. Maybe in the real world, the one without cameras and happy food and travel shows, everybody, the good and the bad together, are all crushed under the same terrible wheel. I hope, I really hope, I'm wrong about that. He was a cook. He barely considered himself a chef, and he certainly wouldn't call himself a journalist. But there, in Beirut, watching planes pass overhead, dropping bombs on neighborhoods he and his crew had just spent the last week getting to know and filming, a lot changed for him. A lot changed when he found himself in Namibia, Iran, Mexico, Laos, or Myanmar. And he showed us those changes. And he showed us how those understandings, those revelations, hurt. How they reflected on us as a civilization. He wasn't blaming us, but he was accounting for our behavior. On the morning of June 8th, when his best friend, Chef Eric Repair, found him hanging lifeless in his hotel room in Kaiserberg, France, Anthony Bourdain had sealed his own legacy. I honestly don't know if I would have my career without Tony. All of us here at Dirty Spoon have been deeply influenced by his work, but I don't know if I would have ever thought to write about food and booze for a living, if not for him. 
If I hadn't seen an episode of A Cook's Tour when I was in college and bought the book and found it to be one of the best memoirs I'd ever stumbled upon, I really don't know what I'd be doing right now. But it was Bourdain that clued me in. Seeing some punk jackass in a Ramones t-shirt cruising down the Mekong River, stopping to eat some noodles while making casual comments on the scene. It opened up a whole new understanding of foreign cultures to ignorant little s like me. It really made you understand that with a little bit of speculation, a lot of openness to adventure, and the willingness to just listen, the world could be much bigger than you ever knew. The best part was watching him grow. From a cocky, arrogant old guy in Kitchen Confidential, he found himself on boats, planes, trains, and in sticky situations on a cook's tour before landing his shows on Travel Channel and then CNN. And through all of it, we saw a 40-year-old punk turn into one of the most thoughtful, tender, and open human beings on Earth. His focus went from seeking out good food to seeking out deep culture. In the faded wakes of MFK Fisher, Bourdain took that same mantle and folkloric narrative of a food writer at the dinner table to plunge headlong into politics, morality, philosophy, and tradition. He used journalists' techniques to make something very different from journalism. Was that your most dangerous trip, Congo? Probably. Uh, I mean, we shot in post-Benghazi Libya, in wartime Beirut, uh, in Iraq. Uh, but I think, you know, Congo is a place where everything's fine until it's not, and that, that can happen really, really quickly. To some extent, do you feel that you're carrying the burden of television news as oh, God, such, no. uh, and foreign correspondence? No, I feel really, really, really lucky, given the way things are and the pressures that are clearly on every news organization as far as, you know, how many bureaus they can maintain and what 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 stories people are willing to watch because they're clearly given a choice between a Kardashian and a story in Congo. Everyone's going to go with a Kardashian every time. Yeah. Um, what I do is I'm telling stories in places about people that are that it's probably useful to know a little more about. So when news does happen, Maybe you've seen my show, so you know who we're talking about. By being a memoirist and not a field reporter, Bourdain was able to find himself in regions of the world most of us don't take the time to think about. When's the last time you mulled over the struggles of the Namibian people? Or folks in the Congo? But nevertheless, that's where he went. By sitting at the tables of people across the world, he gave us windows into their world. Pictures of everyday life in countries the majority of us will never even consider setting foot. So that now, when we hear about a bombing in Libya or see a hurricane approaching Cuba, we think of the folks we saw at his table. Kind people who cooked for him, sheltered him, treated him like one of their own. He taught us not to be afraid of the other. He taught us how painful it is to put yourself in someone else's shoes. But he also showed us how vulnerable that is and how it's worth the pain. To think about, much less empathize, with somebody who comes from five generations of coal miners in a place that looks like this is to our enduring shame unthinkable. Why can't these coal miners get retrained, maybe put up solar panels for a living? Why would these conservative, deeply religious people vote for a thrice-married billionaire New Yorker? Well, I went to West Virginia, and you know what? Screw you. 
Here in the heart of every belief system I've ever mocked or fought against, I was welcomed with open arms by everyone. I found a place both heartbreaking and beautiful. A place that symbolizes and contains everything wrong and everything wonderful and hopeful about America. I found out about his death when Catherine texted me at 8 in the morning. When I learned that it was Eric, his best friend, that found him, it broke me. But when I scanned social media and saw that just about everyone I knew from every walk of life and every industry, religion, denomination, and political party were singing his praises and lamenting his early passing, it brought a strange comfort. Everyone in the food industry wanted to be Anthony Bourdain. They wanted his lifestyle, his freedom, his gravitas, his compassion. Everyone wanted it but him. He didn't pretend to be a saint. He burned through two marriages, both ruined by affairs. He was a recovered heroin addict. But he was as blue-collar as they came. He wasn't some hotshot chef. He was just a dude. He was just one of the boys on the line at the bistro. And he worked his way up from dishwasher to a chef and eventually to an award-winning writer through discipline and tenacity. The best part about the social media storm that erupted after his passing were the pictures. Most were press photos as I scrolled through my Instagram timeline, but at least half of the ones in my feed were of times my friends and colleagues had spent with him. Dinners, street encounters, book readings. For anyone who has worked in a restaurant, you could tell as soon as you heard him speak that he was one of us. And he showed us that what we did meant something, even if it was just a shitty brunch shift. I was always disappointed to listen to interviews with Bourdain because no one ever asked the right questions. Even Fresh Air stooped so low as to ask him about eating unwashed warthog rectum, losing the purpose of why he ate it. He wasn't there to eat that organ. He was there to learn about those people. It wasn't bizarre foods, watch me eat this live scorpion. It was sitting at the table of strangers to learn more about their lives, where they come from, and where they're going. He was a student of the world, and he shared with us what he learned. I thought he'd always be around. I was looking forward to his last few seasons of the show before he'd retire to Vietnam, as he'd always said he wanted to do. I was looking forward to his next book, and hoping he'd pen another travel memoir, or maybe another graphic novel. Because right now in this world, we need his voice. We need his patience. Bourdain spent his career teaching us not to be scared of our neighbor, but instead to sit down with them and get to know them, to give them time and space to tell their stories. Or as he said, maybe that's enlightenment enough to know that there is no final resting place of the mind, no moment of smug clarity. Perhaps wisdom is realizing how small I am and unwise and how far I have yet to go. We'll miss you, Tony. <laughs>